Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. We're also joined from the US by Ben McClanahan, our US banking editor, and by Dennis Kelleher, who is head of Better Markets, the regulatory think tank. This week, we'll be looking at the rowback of regulation in the US, also at Lloyds Bank in the UK, as it promises to review the case of victims of potential abuses by its HBOS subsidiary. And finally, uh, look at Italian banking as Unicredit goes to the market for fresh capital and Intesa ponders a deal with Generali. So first, let's go to the US and our banking editor there, Ben McClanahan. Ben, Gary Cohn has been tasked with overseeing the unwind of Dodd-Frank. Now, of course, Gary Cohn was the number two at Goldman Sachs until very recently. He's now going to be unwinding the regulatory agenda that's been put in place over the past few years. Is this not an egregious example of a fox being put in charge of the hen house? Yeah, it's easy to characterise it that way. Gary Cohen was co-president and co-COO of Goldman Sachs from 2006, and he had the roles to himself from 2010, so you could say he had a ringside seat throughout the years around the crisis. He also sat on that credit committee at Goldman Sachs, so he would have had a hand in approving some of those dubious deals that got the bank into some trouble, like over the uh, the bond issues for 1MDB, that um, Malaysian sovereign wealth fund. Uh, he was also promoted to that co-president role from the Securities Trading Division, where he was co-head. So he does share a measure of the blame for some of those deals, like Timberwolf, where Goldman was accused of profiting at its client's expense. So from that point of view, you could argue he's not the most persuasive advocate for deregulating Wall Street. But in his defense, I suppose you could say he's quite a pragmatic guy, so you shouldn't assume he's naturally leaning one way or the other. He's changed his political spots in the past, for example. He backed Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2007 and 2008. And latterly, of course, he's donated mostly to the Republicans, and that was the connection with Jared Kushner in particular that got him this job. And so far, at least in his public remarks, he's been pretty measured. He's saying all the expected good, wholesome things about growth and jobs and so on. And what elements of Dodd-Frank is Gary Cohn likely to focus on repealing? Well, hard to tell. In his limited media interviews so far, he's talked in general terms about relaxing restrictions on lending. That's, of course, very common language at this point, I suppose. But people who know him suggest he'll be focusing, in the short term at least, on a couple of things. That's the stress tests and the resolution plans. The stress tests in particular have been a real bugbear for the likes of Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs and Citigroup, I suppose, B of A, and all the big guys, really. They have a couple of gripes. The first is the fact that you're supposed to make your request to return capital before you know the results of the stress test. And second, some of the assumptions that the Fed uses in carrying out the stress test, they say are very dubious, such as the assumption that you're going to grow your balance sheet during a crisis that's reckoned to be about four times worse than Lehman crisis. Of course, that wouldn't happen. And that you'll continue to pay dividends when cash is running low and the left side of your balance sheet is supposedly groaning under tens of billions of dollars of losses. 
So I think he's going to look at that. He's also going to look at the resolution plans that Dodd-Frank made the big banks draw up. And the assumption here is that in the heat of the crisis, people are going to reach for these enormous manuals on the shelf and then just work through, according to this ordained sequence of events, how they'll wind themselves up. And of course, the big banks say, well, you've made us do these things. But in the heat of the moment, is anyone actually going to consult the manual of what to do? Some other things, perhaps the Volcker rule. Again, the banks say that started out sensible. It started as a measure to stop banks gambling shareholders' funds. But by the end, after four years of toing and froing, it it was way too complex, they say. 950 pages, 2,800 footnotes. And Jamie Dimon, the head of J.P. Morgan Chase, has that famous quote about needing a psychiatrist to divine the intent behind a trade. Is it really market-making or some sneaky bet on the direction of prices? Do you think there are any elements of Dodd-Frank that some bankers would like to see maintained? Yeah, I think this is an interesting one because uh, in their public statements, the bankers say that Dodd-Frank has been a pretty good thing on balance. It's forced them to hold much more capital than they had going into the last crisis. It's made their assets on the balance sheets much more liquid. And uh, on the liability side, they have much fewer short-term liabilities now. So that means that their ability to withstand shocks to the system and bank-run-like scenarios is much greater. But I think there are one or two controversial aspects of Dodd-Frank that I think will be preserved in spite of the bank's attempts to get rid of them. I think the best example is the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. That was the brainchild of Liz Warren. And that's been a real thorn in the side of the banks, particularly the retail-focused banks over the last five or six years. I think that they're going to have to accept it. It stays, but that they're going to push for uh, some changes structurally to the way the CFPB goes about its business. They want to move from a sole head to a commission structure, like the SEC or the CFTC, that's with appointees from both sides of the aisle. They also want to have the CFPB compete for funding through the normal congressional process, rather than getting an automatic handout from the Fed. And combined, those two measures should have the effect of neutering the CFPB to some extent. And finally, Ben, Gary Cohn's stature in the White House, how central will he be to the whole White House agenda? That's the big question. Historically, the job he's got, that's director of the National Economic Council, that's historically subordinate to the Treasury Secretary. I think it's clear already that Gary Cohn's emerging as the point man for financial reform and could well have a big role to play in other reform efforts affecting other sectors. The most interesting question, I think, is the extent to which he could counter Donald Trump's protectionist instincts. At Goldman, there was a speech just a few months ago. He was down in Miami, and we had a reporter there and recorded him telling all his listeners how Goldman was hiring thousands of tech people out in Bangalore and wanted to hire, you know, hundreds more and replacing all the marginal roles with guys out there because, he says, they work for cents on the dollar compared to people in the US. And that kind of language, of course, is not exactly music to the ears of people like Steve Bannon or Stephen Miller or Peter Navarro, all these Trump advisors, or even Wilbur Ross, who's the nominee for Commerce Secretary. So if Gary Cohen really believes that, he may have to rein it in a bit in his new role. But so far, he does certainly appear to be the guy by the side of Donald Trump from an economic policy point of view. He could play a similar role for the president as he played for Lloyd Blankfein at Goldman. That was the role of fixer, enforcer, henchman. That's making people line up behind a given strategy. Well, we're joined now by Dennis Kelleher from the Better Markets organisation in the US. Dennis, your organisation is a think tank, I suppose, but you also campaign for better regulation. With that in mind, what do you think of the former number two at Goldman Sachs now being in charge of the deregulatory process in the US? 
Well, apart from the irony that candidate Trump attacked Wall Street and Goldman Sachs in particular, and even used the picture of the CEO of Goldman Sachs in his closing commercial as one of the people responsible for inflicting massive economic damage on the hardworking Americans who are still suffering from the financial crash and the economic calamity it caused, We'll leave that irony, if not despicable conduct aside, the difference between candidate Trump and President Trump. But putting Goldman Sachs number two in charge of the National Economic Council and the National Economic Policy of the United States with special emphasis on financial deregulation is a folly that will be historic in years to come. And the reason for that is is financial reform was designed to prevent the biggest banks in the world like Goldman Sachs and Citigroup and J.P. Morgan from crashing the global economy again, which is what they did in 2008, because they were deregulated and they were allowed to engage in reckless and often illegal conduct, which caused massive risk to build up in the global financial system caused an economic calamity, the economic consequences of which are still being suffered throughout the United States and the entire globe. And Gary Cohen knows better, and nonetheless, he is leading the charge to deregulate the biggest banks once again, which will unleash them again on the global financial system with likely disastrous consequences. What areas in particular do you think he may focus on and are you particularly worried about? You know, where are the biggest dangers that could blow up the world for a second time? Well, he has mentioned a number of areas which are the pillars that have been put in place to prevent another crash. So, for example, they have talked about reducing capital, liquidity, derivatives regulation, the Volcker Rule, and other aspects of financial reform. And let me just mention, you know, financial reform was really the re-regulation of Wall Street's biggest banks. People forget, but after the Great Depression in the 1930s, heavy, extensive rules were put on finance throughout the globe. And finance was regulated more during the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, more heavily than at any time in history. And yet, we had a thriving, growing middle class. We had a thriving, growing economy. And even finance did very well during those years under the heaviest regulation in history. And what happened in the 80s and 90s is finance was deregulated, ultimately completely deregulated around 2000. And therefore, it only took them about seven years to blow up the global economy after being regulated and no crashes for more than 70 years. So financial reform starting in 2010 re-regulated the industry and required them to have more capital and more liquidity. And that meant that they could withstand economic and financial shocks without needing bailouts from taxpayers. Financial reform also required the regulation of derivatives, which is one of the things the biggest banks used to make big high-risk bets. And that's great if they win their bets because then they get big bonuses. But if they lose their bets, then the banks go bankrupt and taxpayers have to step in, as they had to throughout the U.K. and in the United States. 
and they're going after all of those rules. Another one is the so-called Volcker rule, and what the Volcker rule does is it says the biggest banks cannot bet their money to hit big bonuses because they're backed by the taxpayers. And they're saying you can't use taxpayer-backed deposits to place big bets so that you can get big bonuses. It's kind of like saying to your neighbor, take my credit card and go to the local casino. And if you win, you get to keep all the money. But if you lose, I'll pay the bill. Well, of course, you've just incentivized your neighbor to make the biggest bets possible. And that's what the biggest banks in the globe did leading up to the 2008 crash. That's what the vocal rule, derivatives regulation, capital and liquidity requirements are all meant and designed to prevent them from doing again. You mentioned the last of the deregulation happened in 2000. There was a seven-year period then before the crash, essentially. Another seven or eight years have gone on post-crisis of the regulatory phase from 2010 to now. Are we on this new seven-year cycle? In other words, by 2024, can you see the next crash happening? Well, the risk that we have now with Gary Cohen and Goldman Sachs and Wall Street driving financial deregulation for the Trump administration is that they're going to roll back those reforms. And if they do only half of what they have said they're going to do, then the odds of another financial crash are almost certain and almost certainly sooner rather than later. And what's worst of all, Patrick, the next financial crash will likely be much, much worse than the one in 2008 where we just barely avoided a second Great Depression, the odds are actually quite high that if we have another crash in the near to medium term, that we will end up inflicting a second Great Depression on the people of the world because the political and economic and financial capacity of the governments in the world to respond to another crash are greatly diminished than they were in 2008 because the financial and economic system have not had time to repair themselves and rebuild themselves. We need a good 10 or 20 years before the financial and economic and political system will have the capacity to again deal with a financial crash. So they are really playing with fire by deregulating precipitously and without any basis. A final brief thought from you. One hope, I guess, that you might have and other fans of the regulation that's gone on in the last few years might have is that, as in the immigration debate, where judges and other opponents of Trump's reforms have got in the way of what he wanted to do, that actually the natural safety mechanisms in the US Constitution will block this deregulatory agenda, whether that be Congress or or other forces. Well, you're absolutely right. The good news is that the United States political and legal system has a variety of parts. And while the president can tweet out what he wants and make political pronouncements, it's much more difficult to actually change laws, rules, and regulations. And there's a required process both on the regulatory side and on the legal side for them to really roll back some of the key pillars. At the same time, it is going to take people fighting quite hard to prevent them from doing many of the damaging things that Gary Cohen and the other leaders of this administration are saying that they're going to do. 
So on the one hand, you're right. There's a process, a legal process, a political process, and a regulatory process that can slow down mindless deregulation of the financial system, but it's a really arduous task. And while you can slow them down, ultimately it's going to be difficult to stop them from gutting financial reform and putting the global financial system and the economy at great risk without any basis. And that's the other important thing. If you listen to what they're saying, they have great talking points, but they have virtually no data or evidence or an actual basis for doing what they're claiming they're doing, other than Wall Street's favorite talking points, which they've used for decades and have been proved to be false. Dennis Keller, thank you so much. Let's move on to Lloyd's. Emma, you broke the story on Tuesday morning about Lloyd's planning this review of the practices of HBOS, its subsidiary, over small business customers and how they might have been mistreated. That's right. So Lloyd's Banking Group this morning has revealed that it will be launching a review conducted by a third-party independent consultancy into some of its small business customers who may have potentially been affected by the fraudulent activity of former HBOS employees between 2003 and 2007. Last week we had several individuals convicted of criminal activity, didn't we? One of whom was a senior figure in the impaired assets division at Lloyd's, Lyndon Scurfield. Indeed. So the court heard last week that Scarfield collaborated and formed an inverted commas corrupt relationship with one David Mills, who was head of a debt management consultancy called Keyside Corporate Services. And the court heard how Scarfield would refer some of the HBOS division's ailing small business customers to Keyside Corporate Services in return for bribes such as sex with prostitutes, travel abroad and cash. And as a result, Scarfield and Mr Mills and four other financiers connected in this activity were sentenced to prison. While this whole criminal investigation was ongoing by police and so on, everything else was essentially frozen. So Lloyd's argument as to why they're only responding now is that they couldn't do anything while there was an investigation ongoing. And I suppose the regulators are in the same position. Are we now going to see Lloyd's try to compensate these customers, essentially, once this review is done? Or is the regulator going to insist on that? Is it another PPI kind of scandal? So Lloyd's is now working with the watchdog, the Financial Conduct Authority, in relation to appointing this third-party consultancy to review the situation, which could involve at least 50 business clients and up to 200. That's the number that Scarfield oversaw within his HBOS unit. And it's expected to take about six months. Lloyd's has said that it could end up setting aside some money to form a compensation pot. So obviously this will be bad news for shareholders in the bank who have suffered years of Lloyd's setting aside numerous amounts every quarter to cover the mis-selling debacle that is payment protection insurance. And to date, Lloyd's has has been the worst hit by this scandal, having set aside some £17 billion to cover that. And there's still no end in sight to that debacle. Very good. Well, let's hope it doesn't get to that kind of quantum, for Lloyd's sake at least. Let's move on to our final story of the day, or rather a look at the whole of Italian finance. There's quite a few things going on in Italy at the moment. Martin, I suppose the most immediate of which is Unicredit's long-trailed rights issue. Yeah, that launches this week. The biggest bank in Italy by assets is kicking off 
the process of trying to raise 13 billion euros to shore up its balance sheet after taking a similar-sized hit in provisions for bad loans, goodwill write-downs, restructuring costs, etc., in the fourth quarter, which is all a reflection of the attempts of the new chief executive of the bank, Jean-Pierre Moustier, to clean up the biggest bank in Italy. Bankers that we've spoken to say that they're pretty confident that Unicredit will be able to raise this pretty colossal amount of money. It's almost equivalent to their entire market capitalization that they're trying to raise, which gives you a sort of sense of the scale. They've recently agreed to sell some 18 billion euros of non-performing loans to a couple of big US funds. And they've taken huge write-downs on those loans, which is indicative of the underlying problem that all these Italian banks are facing. Some 360 billion euros, about 15% of all bank loans in Italy have gone bad. And the price that they're being held at in the books of these Italian banks does not correspond to the market price. So in order to be able to sell them, they've got to take these huge write-downs. And to be able to do that, they need to raise capital, which is what's going on at Unicredit. Now, Monte de Paschi was in a similar situation. The smaller Siena-based rival, Monte de Paschi de Siena, tried to raise about 5 billion euros and failed last year and therefore is in the process of being bailed out by the Italian government and the Italian government is locked currently in negotiations with the European Commission about the terms of that bailout and also the European Central Bank which crucially needs to decide what level of provisions the bank must take and therefore how much capital does it need and therefore how big must the bailout be. So that negotiation is going on at the moment. And then finally, the other big bank in Italy, Intesa San Paolo, is considering launching a humongous takeover offer for Generali, the biggest insurer in the country. Yeah, that's quite a contrast, right? So if the vast majority of the Italian banking sector is in defensive mode, we've got Unicredit and others trying to shore up their capital base. At the same time as that, you've got Intesa trying to flex their muscles and look like they're very different from everybody else. I guess that's one part of the messaging around this generally mooted takeover. But what else do you see in there? What's the kind of game plan? you sure it's not defensive, Patrick? (laughs) Because some people might interpret it that way. Defensive from a point of view of Intesa, which up to now has been seen as the one healthy institution in the Italian banking firmament, But it's also launching this takeover offer at a time of defensiveness on a national level, but also institutionally, because if Unicredit does succeed with its rights issue and selling off a big chunk of its non-performing loan portfolio, people can see how pretty quickly... Unicredit could replace Intesa as the sort of star of the Italian banking sector because it would have a lower NPL ratio, it would have higher capital, it will have got its house in order and be heading in the right direction. Intesa has quite a high level of non-performing loans. No one's raising the alarm about it because there are other more troubled institutions. But once Unicredit sorts itself out, the focus could switch to Intesa. So perhaps this is a defensive move. But also in Italy, there is a defensive move generally about foreign takeover of large Italian companies. We've seen with uh, Luxottica, Mediaset, Pioneer, several of these large Italian companies being taken over by foreign groups and generally it's underperformed versus its two main European rivals, AXA and Allianz. It's considered vulnerable to a takeover and Intesa's chief executive, Carlo Messina, has publicly said that part of this is about Italy pulling together and combining two great Italian institutions into one. So there's an element of 
patriotic economic interest here as well as sort of defensive move by Inteza to stay ahead of the game? Well, we'll have to see if they decide to go ahead with it, whether they can persuade their shareholders of the merits of the deal. That's another question altogether. That's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Emma here in the studio, Ben in New York, and also Dennis Kelleher, our guest from Better Markets. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon and Amy Keane. Until next week, goodbye. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.